Regarding the uh, collection that we take up each Lord's Day, um, when COVID impacted all of us, you'll remember that we started to leave the uh, offering plates in the foyer so people could make their uh, donation or offering on their way in or their way out. And the deacons just wanted to let you know that uh, beginning next Sunday, we're going to resume our former practice of taking up the collection during the uh, worship service. Uh, so just be aware of that next Sunday. We'll have the collection during the service. All right. Um, let me uh, invite you to take a copy of scriptures and turn with me again to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. And here at Trinity, we believe that all of Scripture is the breathed-out product of God and is useful, it's profitable for God's people. Even those parts of the Bible that we tend to ignore, skip over, place like the book of Deuteronomy. And so we are working through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we've come to Deuteronomy chapter 4 this morning, verses 9 through 31. Bit of a longer reading this morning. Um, to set this all up, let's remember that last time Moses talked to God's people about two of the greatest gifts that God gives to his people, uh, the gifts of his presence and his law. God draws near to his people and he gives them statutes and rules to live by, not to earn life, but to live the life that they have been saved for. And now in our text today, Moses is going to uh, talk about two potential dangers that threaten God's people from enjoying God's presence and living by his law in the sight of all peoples. And those two dangers are, well, first of all, forgetting God's covenant, forgetting the uh, work that God has done to save us and to make us his people. And the second danger is turning to idols. And to avoid these two dangers of forgetting God's covenant and turning to idols, is to see that this passage ultimately leads us to listen to God's beloved son, who is the image of the invisible God. And so before we turn to hear God's word, let's pause briefly and pray and ask for his help, and then let's hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have, uh, you've called us and commanded us to listen to your son. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and allow us to sit at the feet of Jesus today and learn from him. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire 
to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you. And make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Well, we all have defining moments in our lives. Certainly a defining moment in my life was marrying Kelsey. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but another defining moment in our life was when we 
met with Dave and Pat Carlberg. I wonder if you two remember uh, getting together for dinner at Olive Garden in Greensburg to talk about the potential of coming out to Johnstown and serving alongside of one another. That has proved to be a defining moment in our lives. Defining moments shape our lives. They shape how we think about the past and view the present and think about the future. Some defining moments are personal, like a wedding day. Some defining moments are national, like the 9-11 attacks. But all defining moments shape our lives. And one of the most defining moments in the history of Israel is when God spoke declaring his covenant out of the fire burning into the heart of heaven at Mount Horeb, or as we also know it, at Mount Sinai. This overwhelming experience before the blazing mountain left a lasting impression. It was, it was not only burned into Israel's memory, but the covenant that God declared was written on tablets of stone to be preserved for all time. And one of the things that we are meant to understand about this defining moment in the lives of God's people is that it was a word-centered experience. It was a word-centered experience. It was defined by the sound of God's voice. You saw no form, Moses said. There was only a voice. God didn't reveal himself visibly, but audibly. As Moses says in verse 12, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And closely related to that, the people of God then were strictly warned against making images for worship. They were commanded to worship according to God's word alone. This is how the covenant was made. There was only a voice. And this is how the covenant is renewed by listening to God's word. One of the things to understand about the book of Deuteronomy is that the book of Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal book that calls us to listen to God's voice and to be renewed in the joy of belonging to God and his belonging to us. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider these verses today in three parts and You'll notice there's a progression in each part from past to present to future. And so first of all, in the first part, verses 9 through 14, we are urged to remember God's covenant. And then secondly, in verses uh, 15 through 24, make no idols, no carved images, Moses says. And then thirdly, in verses 25 through 31, Trust in the Lord's mercy in the midst of judgment. So, verses 9 through 14, remember God's covenant. The way Moses speaks to this generation is really striking, and it needs to be appreciated. 
Although he is speaking to a generation that grew up in the wilderness, the years of wilderness wandering, notice he addresses them as if they were there. As if they were there when God delivered them and brought them to Mount Sinai and spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. Look at verse 9, where Moses begins, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Now, the people could have objected at that point and said, Hang on a second, Moses. We didn't see that with our own eyes. We weren't even there. But that would be to miss the point altogether because Moses is teaching us about a different way of seeing things, of seeing by faith, of seeing reality as it is defined by God's word. So notice in verse 10, the reason God gathered his people at the foot of Mount Sinai was so that they could hear God's word, revere him, and teach their children. And this is exactly what Moses is doing. He is teaching the word the Lord spoke to the next generation. But he does it in a way that includes them in the experience of God's people, being brought out of Egypt and receiving the statutes and the rules. He talks to them as if they were there, that they were the ones who came out of Egypt, that they were the ones who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the voice of the Lord giving them the covenant. By faith, they were there. They were redeemed and brought to Sinai. They heard God's word by God speaking his covenant to them. Moses just continues to emphasize this in verse 11. He says, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Notice Moses doesn't say your parents came near. He says you came near. And verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. They drew near to God and heard God speak to them. And the really stunning thing about this is when we realize that God's word addresses us in the very same way. Just like, think about it, just like Israel at Mount Sinai, the book of Hebrews says that when we come by faith to the gathered assembly of God's people, we come to a mountain. We come to a mountain to hear God speak. We come near to God and we listen to his voice. So listen to this. Describing Christians gathering for worship on the Lord's day. Hebrews 12.18 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. You hear what? Hebrews is alluding to there, it's referring to this experience at Mount Sinai. He's saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but, in verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Did you get that? Do you hear what Hebrews is saying to us there? Where, where are we right now? 268 Hostetler Road, Johnson. Yes, but by faith, Hebrews is saying that our worship is heavenly worship. We are brought by the Spirit through Jesus Christ into the heavenly places, and we come to a mountain, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, to God, and we come to hear Him address and speak to His people. He declares his covenant to us. We come to listen to his voice. And that's why Hebrews 12 verse 25 says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. The him there is is the Lord and it's present. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Like Israel, we are called to listen to and to receive the word of God. Friends, I wonder if we need to do some recovery work today. I wonder if we need to recover recover this biblical vision of worship. Coming to the heavenly Jerusalem. Coming to God and coming to hear him speak his covenant word to us in Jesus Christ. That is what is happening now among us by faith. And we need to remember, we need to remember, like Deuteronomy tells us, we need to remember God's covenant. We need to come near to him and hear his voice. And we must take care lest we forget the things we have seen by faith and the word of his grace depart from our hearts This is one reason, this is one reason among many others why the gathering together of God's people on the Lord's Day is such a big non-negotiable deal. We need to remember God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Aren't you prone to forget? I mean, I, I know I am. I know how prone I am to forget what God has said to me in the gospel. We need to draw near to God. We need to listen to his voice. And Hebrews says this is what happens when we come together. We come to Mount Zion to listen to the word of the Lord. So let's, let's get rid of any mistaken notion of thinking that when we come together, it is just another mere social gathering or a concert, or something that caters to the desires of people. No, we we come to come to God. We come to come to Jesus and hear him speak his covenant word to us so that we would remember, so that we would remember his covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Now in verses 12 through 14, Moses describes not only how God spoke to Israel out of the fire, but how God's words were engraved on tablets of stone. These 
Tablets of stone preserved God's word for all time. That was the point of the stone. It was meant to last. It was not meant to be forgotten. And these stone tablets contain the heart of the covenant, which consisted of ten words, which we more commonly call the Ten Commandments, which God wrote with his own finger on the stone, according to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. These ten words, known as the Ten Commandments, I want to I suggest that, that the name Ten Commandments could be a little bit misleading. A little bit misleading because the Hebrew literally means ten words, but also because there's much more to the Ten Commandments than just commandments. Right? There's not less than that, but there's more. These ten words not only make divine demands, they also narrate the divine drama, how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. The ten words begin by reminding us that we were slaves in bondage in Egypt, but God brought his people out. He delivered them. He redeemed their lives from the pit. He rescued them with a mighty outstretched hand. So we always need to remember that the story of God's redemption stands at the heart of God's standards. The the good news is at the very center of God's demands. So God's rules will never make full sense for God's people detached from that story. It is God's deliverance that drives these demands and empowers us to keep them. Thus, the ten words, or as we call them more commonly, the ten commandments, not only declare the law, but also proclaim the gospel. Now, we've come to the the next section here of verses, in uh, verses 15 through 24, where Moses focuses on this idea of make no idols, no carved image. And as we begin to think about this together, I think we need to recognize that we live in a visual culture, don't we? You know, we, we are saturated in images and screens. It's almost inescapable at this point. I'm reading a, a book by Tony Ranke on technology, and in the beginning of the book, he says that um, the average person now checks their smartphone every 4.3 minutes and the average American spends seven hours a day in front of a screen. So surely due in part to the recent advances in technology, images have become the dominant mode of communication today, to such a point that even even a social media app like Facebook, I think is beginning, already is dying a slow death, but that's only because it's giving way to more image-based social media apps like Instagram and TikTok, even text messaging, think about this, even text messaging is now frequently accompanied with images, GIFs, and emojis. And this ever-increasing image saturation is, I think, having a deeper impact upon us more than we would like to admit. The alternate reality of social media demands that we keep up appearances and create, create our own image so that we look our best to everyone who's watching. More and more, research is directly tying this to the spiking 
cases of anxiety and depression and sadly suicides among our youth. The world of advertising demands our gaze. It wants us to look at this and that and usually the product that's being being sold to us is promising to enhance our image that we might gain further approval. Our world demands more of our visual attention than ever before. I mean, our our culture even gives special place to those who can gain the most views. And in that context, perhaps most concerning of all is that many Christian worship services today are no longer centered on and focused on listening to God's word, hearing God speak. Instead, they are increasingly dominated by large screens and video clips and flashy productions. You see, in an image culture, the church has forgotten that God has called us to be a word-centered people, a people who listen to God's voice. And so it's worth considering this instruction, I think, in The world we live in, a world thousands of years removed from Israel hearing this message on the plains of Moab. And it's worth recognizing at the same time, despite that time distance, that Israel was surrounded by nations whose worship was predominantly visual and sensory. But for Israel, we see this is one of the ways God was setting Israel apart from the nations. God put the emphasis on the auditory. God was heard, but not seen. And it's worth considering this in light of what Moses goes on to say in verses 15 and 16. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. Now, it's important, I think, to be clear. This warning against making images as objects of worship doesn't mean that God despises the visual arts or is opposed to beauty. In fact, in Exodus 31 We're told how the Lord himself filled Bezalel with his spirit to beautify the tabernacle. So Exodus 31 says that Bezalel was given skill to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood, to work in every craft. Okay, so this this warning here against making images is not an absolute prohibition, but it is meant to rule out idolatry. It does not forbid the making of images in general, but visible images for worship. And notice the reason this is given then in verse 15. Since you saw no form. This was the defining moment. That's why. Since you saw no form on that day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. At the defining moment when the Lord revealed himself at Mount Sinai... He did not reveal himself by a visible image, but by a spoken word. He didn't reveal himself by a carved image, but by speaking a covenant summed up in ten words. And that's why visual representations of God are strictly forbidden in the scriptures. Think about it. God is is infinite and 
eternal and uh, inv- he's a, he, we sang it earlier, he is an invisible spirit. He's omnipotent, sovereign. He's omnipresent. He's not limited by space. He's perfectly free. And so, so God's glory cannot be captured or limited by a, 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 an image. It cannot be reduced to an image of anything in the world. God says, not even the heavenly bodies which God appointed, nothing in heaven or on earth can capture God's glory. Oh, I want to mention just a couple of rhetorical features in this set of verses that I think help us better understand what Moses is saying here. It's fascinating what Moses does. These verses are related to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 in at least two ways. First, given what Moses has said in verse 13 about the ten words, it is worth noting that the phrase God said occurs ten times in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. Now that's interesting. Okay, think about it. We get ten commands, ten words, and the story of Israel's salvation from Egypt. We get ten expressions of this phrase. God said, God said, when God created the world. I think what's being said is, just as God brought all of creation into being by his word, so he brought Israel into being by his covenant word. And the church, it's true for us as well. We confess that the church is a creature of the word. The church is not an institution that man makes. The church is a creature of the word. It's established by the word. It's sustained by the word. And it grows by the word because the church is a new creation being created in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the other connection to creation in these verses, it's another rhetorical device that Moses uses, and it's found in the order of the elements of creation listed in verses 16 through 19. Uh, Christopher Wright, who has a really helpful and accessible commentary on the book of Deuteronomy, pointed this out to me, that in verses 16 through 19, the list of possible shapes that idols might take is given in an order that precisely reverses the order of the creation narrative. Isn't that interesting? Say that again. The list of possible shapes that idols might take in verses 16 through 19 precisely reverses the order of creation. So human beings, land animals, birds, fish, the heavenly bodies. I think the point that is being made by this literary feature is that that idolatry not only corrupts God's redemptive purposes for his people, it it turns the created order upside down. It, 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 It turns it on its head. This rhetorical device, it's driving home this point, idolatry turns the world upside down when we try to make God after our own image. Instead, we need to be remade after God's own image. That's the correct order. And the only way that is going to happen is if we listen to God's word. 
Isn't it fascinating that this is the reason I had us read Matthew 17 this morning? That in the moment, the most visually stunning moment of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he was transfigured before his disciples and his face shone like the sun, a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, look at him. No. The voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen. Kids, if you take one thing away from the sermon this morning, let it be this, okay? One simple idea. If you want to know God, listen to Jesus. He is the word made flesh. He is, as Paul puts it in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. God reserves the right to image himself. And he has done so in his son, who as Hebrews puts it, listen to this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 24, one other thing I want to draw your attention to in this section is how Moses concludes his warning against idolatry by saying, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What do you make of that? What do you make of speaking of God as a jealous God? I think one of the challenges we face in understanding what the scriptures are saying to us here is that today when we hear the word jealousy, it tends to connote kind of pettiness, desiring something that doesn't belong to us. And the important thing for us to understand is that's actually the exact opposite of what the Hebrew word means that's translated jealousy. Jealousy in scripture, is a, it, 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 it's a virtuous thing here. It is the response of a lover toward a third party that threatens a relationship. Think about it this way. God's jealousy is like that fire that burns in the heart of a loving husband who is jealous for his bride. I think the Song of Songs beautifully describes this kind of jealousy, fueled or rooted in love. The bride, this is the bride, the bride sings, set me a seal upon your heart as a seal on your arm, for your love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Beloved, God's love for you is a jealous love. His love is fueled by not an exploitive desire to control or manipulate you, but a resolute commitment to your good. And the Song of Songs is a description of how we ought to respond to God's jealous love for us in Christ, 
It calls for our total commitment by giving ourselves back to our our beloved, to him in exclusive, unadulterated love and devotion. Set me as a seal upon your heart. So remember God's covenant. Make no idols. And then finally and briefly, seek the Lord's mercy and judgment in verses 25 through 31. Uh, We can't reflect on all the details in these verses, so let me just draw our attention to to one thing. It's an apparent tension that we find in these verses that really runs throughout the book. On the one hand, Moses describes a God of inexpressible grace and compassion who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As Moses says at the very End of our passage today, verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. But on the other hand, Moses also describes a God of holy wrath and righteous indignation who will by no means clear the guilty. As Moses explains in verses 25 and 26. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So so which is it, you might ask? How how can God be so gracious and so fierce at the same time? How can he maintain both his justice and his mercy? And how are we supposed to make sense of this apparent tension? Of course, the temptation that we all face is to try to resolve the tension by emphasizing one attribute at the expense of another But we cannot do that. None of God's attributes can be compromised or ignored. To make matters more concerning, though, think about it. The story of Israel, the story of God's people, is a story, not in the whole and not in the end, but a story of idolatry. What Moses describes here came to pass. The people did act corruptly and went after other gods and provoked the righteous indignation of the Lord. Remember last time we we mentioned that when God brought Israel to Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant, it was described by the prophets as a marriage covenant. And Israel was to cling to uh, her bridegroom as as a bride clings to her husband. But instead, after after God delivered her from oppression in Egypt and brought her to himself and entered into this marriage covenant with her and then led her into a good and spacious land and gave her all kinds of good things, she turned away and went after other gods. As the prophets say, she played the whore. And to bring it home even more, we have to be honest and say this is our story too. 
We have been unfaithful. Instead of holding fast to the Lord alone, the Lord who is our life, we have gone after idols thinking that our life is found in them. So again, what do we make of this apparent tension between God's uncompromising justice and his indescribable mercy? How does God maintain both without compromise? Continuing with this idea of being married to God in covenant relationship, I think the prophet Hosea is so very helpful. He helps us to answer this. And he's writing at a time when Israel has gone into the land and and they have turned away to idols. And God says of his unfaithful bride through Hosea, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me, get this, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy, and you shall know the Lord. Did you hear that? God says to his unfaithful people, I will betroth you to me in justice and in mercy. He will secure a bride for himself while maintaining his perfect justice and his unfathomable mercy. That was demonstrated, dear friends, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, was it not? When the bridegroom came down from heaven to win for himself a bride. And he came for a bride with garments spoiled by sin, covered in dirt and filth. And he gave himself up for her to cleanse her, to make her clean, to present her spotless to himself. See, the bridegroom satisfied the justice of God while simultaneously demonstrating the unfathomable mercy of God. I mean, isn't the gospel incredible? Christ came down from heaven. To secure for himself a bride, a bride who's been unfaithful, a bride with unclean garments. And he gave herself, himself for her to cleanse her. And God justly dealt with our infidelity in his faithful son. And as he did so, he demonstrated his steadfast love and his perfect justice so that we might know the Lord Forever, as Hosea puts it. And you know in the world of the Bible, knowing is marital language, isn't it? It's the language of intimacy and belonging and knowing and being known. And so it is the word of the cross and the word of the cross that all of the promised blessings and curses of God's covenant remain uncompromised. And we need to realize, as Deuteronomy will teach us again and again and again, that God has done this, not because, of, not because of anything in us, not because of who we are, not because of anything we have done, for you are a stubborn people, Deuteronomy chapter 9 says to God's people. He has done this because of who he 
is. And because of a promise he has made. As Moses puts it, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore. So friends, let's hold fast to the Lord, for he is our life. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for speaking your word to us today. And we pray that we would take it to heart and remember your covenant Oh, that you would keep us from turning away from you, the Lord, our life, to lifeless idols. Instead, teach us to seek your mercy and to know that you are faithful in your steadfast love and that you will keep your promise to your people to save us to the uttermost in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.